Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you should speak. But he, that is Moses, said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you will should be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. All right, we're in Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We're actually going to be Exodus 4, 1 through 17. I wanted to, before we get into the meat and potatoes of uh, the message this morning, and you're welcome, now you're hungry. Just something real quick. I was talking with uh, some of the members of the church staff this week. I thought, oh, this is worth mentioning. Maybe you hadn't thought about this, but the Bible as a book has a number of different genres. That's a popular word, famous word, or a genres. What does that mean? Ooh, fancy Mr. Frenchy. There's different types of literature in the Bible. So you might say it this way. Here's a way of illustrating. In the epistles or the letters, when Paul wants to tell you God loves you, what does he do? God loves you. It's very propositional. What the epistles say, here's the information, believe it, go and be blessed. Now, when you would say God loves you in the Psalms, the psalmist, because he's writing poetry and music, his intention is not to tell you God loves you. What does he say? God's mercies are new every morning. He doesn't want you to merely have the information. What does he want? He wants you to feel it. The Psalms are written to communicate truth through emotion. That means if you're reading the Psalms the way you're reading the book of Romans, you might be missing a little bit. When you read a psalm, you're supposed to feel a particular way. And if you've read more than two psalms, the range of emotions in the psalms are happiness, sadness, grief, sorrow. There's some things in the psalms that if you wrote it, people wouldn't think you're a Christian. God, where are you? You'd never show up. I'm almost dead, God. Anytime now. This is the Greg translation, but it's in there. That's why we love the psalms, because they connect with where we are. Now, the other major portion, in fact, the largest portion of literature, kind of literature in the Bible, is narrative or biblical history. And that's what we're in, the book of Exodus. So, in the narrative, biblical history, when the authors want to say God loves you, what do they do? They tell a story. So, it's a different way of communicating truth, and that's what we're doing in the book of Exodus, is God is telling us about his great love to redeem those imprisoned, especially to sin, by telling us a fabulous true story about his work in the lives of the people of Israel. And now, in the middle of this, Exodus chapter 4, 
Moses is still talking to God at the burning bush. We've been in this uh, several weeks, even though the event itself probably didn't take several weeks. And Moses and God are having a conversation because God is going to send Moses to Egypt to bring his people out of imprisonment in Egypt. Now, when you think of something as a godsend, what do you think of? Oh, it's a godsend. Maybe if you have a big bill that's due and then you also get a refund at the same time, you say, oh, this is great. What a godsend. I had this great need and it showed up. Or if you need help, moving, say, for example, and you forgot to arrange for somebody to have a pickup. And nobody you know has a pickup because they sold them all because everybody kept moving. (laughs) Nobody wanted to have one. And then one of the guys shows up and he has a pickup. It's a godsend. Somebody actually drove something other than a hybrid to help me move. So a godsend is when something happens, that's a description of when something happens that's sort of, oh, what a great thing, out of nowhere. This is a godsend. Well, today we're looking at the life of Moses, and we're not thinking of someone who has a godsend happen to them. It is someone who is God-sent. And we want to look at what it uh, it looks like in the life of Moses to be God-sent. Here's a couple of questions you might ask yourself as we walk our way through this account. Where is God sending me? If I could know that, how could I go where God is sending me? And finally... Where is God sending me, and and what if I'm not able to do what God has called me to do? What if God has called me to something that I don't think I could do, or have the ability to do, or don't want to do? Where is God sending me? Could I go? What if I'm not able? Am I God sent? Look at verses 1 through 9 of Exodus chapter 4. God's power is convincing. So Moses, of course, is arguing with God. God sends, tells him he's going to go to Egypt and draw Israel out of imprisonment. Moses says this in Exodus 4, chapter, uh, 4.1. Listen, they're not going to believe me. God says, I'm going to send you. I want you to go tell the people of Israel, get ready to go, pack it up, let's roll. And Moses says, you know what, they're not going to believe me. God says, okay. I, I, I think I agree with that. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you some signs so that you can do these things to demonstrate that you have been sent by God himself, that you've been sent by me. So he says, take your staff. And the staff, remember Moses is a shepherd, has been doing that for 40 years. Every shepherd had a staff. He would use it to direct his sheep on occasion, give them a good whack on the nose if they weren't being right. Might even use it to defend the sheep against a wild animal. God says, throw your staff on the ground. So Moses throws his staff on the ground. And if you look at it, it says, it turned into a snake. And Moses ran away. Moses ran from it. It's right there. It's in the Bible. Why did Moses run away from his own staff? Because it was a snake. That is the appropriate response. No, No truer words have ever been spoken. And the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And you say, why would God tell him to catch it by the tail? Because the other end is the business end. That would be obvious. You'll catch it by the head. Okay, now, Lord, is there not someone else? Okay, so he grabs it by the tail, and when he grabs it, it turns right back into a staff. So what God says is, listen, if they ask you if uh, you are uh, sent by me, throw your staff on the ground, it'll turn to a snake. 
pick it up again, it'll turn to stab. You can do that over and over and over again. It's really good. I'm sorry. If I was Moses, I'd throw it to a guy. <laughs> but it's in a, I, shouldn't, I don't know why these things come into my mind. Inappropriate. Probably sacrilegious. And then um, if they won't believe that, verse 5 of Exodus 4, um, that they may believe the Lord that God uh, has sent you. Notice in verse 5, it says, so they may believe. I think God and Moses are on the same page here. We're not certain that Israel is going to believe or not. It says, you know, do this powerful sign. If not, do this other thing that they may believe. So Moses was told by God, stick his hand into his cloak, and he took it out, and it was covered with some kind of skin disease, a leprosy-type disease. It was all gross and nasty. Say, what, what would that look like? Well, think of Pirates of the Caribbean when the moonlight hits them. It's like, oh, they look like a skeleton. It's all gross and nasty. And so then God says, put it back into your cloak. That's where I become, really? Uh, so put it back into your cloak, take it out, and then it looks normal again. And you can do that and show them, look, I have the power of God because uh, this disease can come and go at God's whim. And then finally, he says, if they don't believe that uh, power if, or, and they don't believe the snake, then take a cup full of the Nile River and pour it out on the ground, and as it hits the ground, it will turn to blood. And with these signs, which are indicated to merely demonstrate, if they won't believe, that um, you are coming with the power of God. Importantly, all these signs were clearly designed, number one, to be uh, foretell the coming plagues that God is going to bring out. And secondly, each of these signs was a power the Egyptians ascribed to different gods in their pantheon. And Moses is saying, I am coming not as one of the gods. I am coming as one representing the God who at a whim can do the powers of these other ne'er-do-well gods. These junior level not gods, but merely spiritual forces. And so he's coming not just showing he can do magic tricks. He is coming communicating that God has power over Egypt and over their uh, religious powers. So the issue here is for Moses, he didn't necessarily doubt God, didn't necessarily doubt God's power. He did doubt Israel's willingness to believe what God was calling them to do. And what God is saying to Moses is this, I don't need you to be convincing. I need you to show them who is powerful because my power is convincing. God is saying, if they see who I am and the power of what I do, they will be convinced by that, not by you, Moses. Your job, Moses, is to be faithful that I might display my power. So we might say it this way, uh, in thinking about the difference between faith, that is believing, and doubt, that is disbelieving, we might understand that faith is not merely believing there is God, Moses believed that, and Israel believed that, it's not merely seeing God's power. Faith is understanding that God's power has a purpose to it, and it's for our benefit and for his glory. Faith is understanding God is powerful, and its purpose is driven for our benefit, and it's driven for his glory. A New Testament example of this is a guy named Zacchaeus. Uh, this is in uh, Luke chapter 19, if you want to look there. But it's, it's worth paying attention to that something Zacchaeus was understanding about. This is Luke 19, the first 10 verses. Uh, Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through. There was a big old crowd following him, and 
Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he was uh, wanting to see Jesus, but Zacchaeus was vertically challenged. Well, it says in the Bible, he was small in stature, very kind of the biblical writer, describing as such. So what he did is he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree because he wanted to get a good view of Jesus. And when he came, that is, Jesus came up to where the sycamore tree was, Jesus looked up and said to Zacchaeus, uh, come on down, get to your house, make lunch. I'm hungry and I'm coming over. So Zacchaeus came down joyfully, went to his home, uh, made a great feast, and Zacchaeus stood up having encountered Christ and said, listen, I'm going to give away half of everything I have, and any defrauding I have done, I will restore it to everybody times four. So for every $100 I took from anybody out of fraud, I will restore to them $400. Zacchaeus was convinced Jesus was who he says he was. He was convinced Christ was the Savior, Redeemer, and now everything he had been about up to that moment was no longer important. And so as an expression of his faith, he repented of pursuing greed and instead said, I want to pursue Christ. What convinced Zacchaeus that Jesus was who he said he was and he could uh, pursue him with nothing else joyfully? What was it that convinced him? It's right in the Bible. Verse 5, Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but that wasn't the issue. What was the issue? Jesus saw Zacchaeus. The powerful point of this uh, story is Jesus sees the sinner and pursues him. And Zacchaeus is not convinced because he was able to climb a tree. And Zacchaeus wasn't convinced because Jesus was a powerful teacher. Zacchaeus was convinced because his Savior looked to him. He said, Zacchaeus, let's do this. I'm pursuing you. Come out of the tree. I'm not coming up there. Let's go to your home and have lunch. God saw him. He was convinced of the power of Christ to redeem even a sinner like him. Someone who had... Uh, been a traitor to his own people, had stolen from his fellow man to enrich himself and build up his own comfort. He was convinced by the power of God in Christ and through Christ that Christ came to save sinners. And it convinced him. He was convinced by Christ's power. Romans 1.16 says this. It's a verse you're familiar with, but it's worth reviewing. I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. The power of God is made known through the good news that Christ saves sinners by being a substitute for us on the cross, by bearing on himself our sin, taking on himself our shame and our guilt. And the Bible tells us that is the power of God. We might desire the power of God in a thousand different ways. We might desire the power of God in miraculous powers and supernatural happenstance. We might desire the power of God to intervene in the difficulties in our life. And what the Bible tells us, God's power is convincing and the power of God is made known most clearly through the gospel. 
That is the power of God. The gospel is the most clear pronouncement that God is all-powerful. I can put it this way, maybe. The gospel, that is, Christ saves sinners through his own death and resurrection, is the greatest miracle, the best evidence that God is who he said he is, and he's about what he says he's about. God's power is convincing. The good news of the gospel changing our hearts is convincing. The gospel is the demonstration of God's power. Look with me at John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Earlier, maybe a chapter earlier, Jesus had performed a miracle that many of us might say was his most significant and powerful miracle. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been dead several days. Jesus gave the command, roll away the stone, and then my life verse was spoken. But Lord, by now he stinketh. That verse should only be uh, quoted in the King James. By now he stinketh, meaning he's dead on dead. He's not getting better now. And Jesus calls to the dead man Lazarus, come out. We would assume at this point that everybody would just, well, he's here, that the Messiah is here. This is Jesus' response after the great uh, excitement of him coming to Jerusalem and the party that was held. Here's Jesus' assessment of the belief of the people. This is John 12, 36 and 37. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, this is in Jerusalem at the, after the great triumphal entry, after raising Lazarus from the dead, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. So some of us are in here, we still have this thing rattling around in our head. Y'all finally get it when God shows up and does the big words in the sky, raises the dead, heals the sick, you fi I'll finally, then I will believe. And what the Bible says, no, I under the Bible understands our heart. He says the, the power of God is not in these signs, although they are powerful. The power of God is the work of the Holy Spirit to convince the human heart, without Christ we're lost. That is the power of God. To soften the human heart to the point where we say, okay, I see what you're saying. Without the work of Christ, I'm a dead man. God's power is convincing, especially and in particular his power in the gospel, which tells us sinners can be found again through the work of Christ. So Moses was to do these signs, the snake, the leprosy, the blood on the ground. But the point is that these little miracles he was doing was not the power of God. The power of God was greater than the signs. The signs were intended to point them to the power of God, which was his ability to redeem his people out of Egypt to worship him in relationship. God is going to redeem his people out of Egypt, a land they could not escape, so that they could worship him in relationship, a relationship they did not deserve. And he says, I will do all of that, and that is the power of God, not turning a stick into a snake. We're going to discover when we get there, Pharaoh's magicians could do the stick thing very simply. They also threw their staffs onto the ground and became snakes. The power of God is revealed. 
when a dead heart becomes quickened, alive, uh, aroused to the fact that God has saved me, and I trust Christ for it, he can redeem me out of my slavery to sin and worship him in relationship, a relationship I ought not to have, a relationship I don't deserve. God's power is convincing. That's why we can be God-sent. Okay, continue on. Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Did you lose your spot in Exodus 4? It's pretty close to the front of the Bible, so it should be pretty easy to find. So, of course... Moses now has these three tools in his tool bag, turn his staff into a snake, leprosy on the hand, pouring the water of the Nile out, turns into blood, and Moses still is arguing with God. Moses says to the Lord, Lord, I can't talk very well. Um, question whether or not he was, had poor vocabulary, maybe just wasn't very eloquent. Uh, some have thought maybe he's lost his ability to speak the Egyptian language real clearly. It's not really clear what the deal is. Obviously, though, he had, had some sense that his speech was not up to par. And interestingly, God does not argue with him about it. You know, some of us will insult ourselves hoping to get a backhanded comment. Oh, I'm not a very good speaker. Oh, yes, you are. Don't sell yourself short, little guy. Most said, God, I don't, I don't speak very well. And God says, yeah, I know, I made you that way. Moses may have been hoping for kind of a building up moment there. But here's the point. God is trying to make a point. He says, it doesn't really matter. I don't want you to be compelling because the message is compelling. God sent. First, we said, what do we say? God's power is convincing. And secondly, this, God's message is compelling. Moses doesn't have a need to be compelling. The message he is communicating is compelling. You think about sales. If, any, if, if you've ever taken a sales class or anything, uh, you hear every now and then about these folks who are just great salespeople. What would he say about them? He could sell ice to Eskimos. Uh, the idea being, this guy is so good at selling, he can create a need even if the person already has everything he needs in that area. That is, even the ability to sell what isn't needed by creating a sense of need and urgency around this idea. So Moses wasn't one who could say, I could sell ice to Eskimos, not that he knew who that was. Moses is saying, I couldn't sell a glass of water to a guy dying of thirst in the desert. Would you like his glass of water? Even if it was free, Moses thinks, the guy probably turned me out. I just can't make it clear what I'm offering. And God is saying to Moses, your condition your, the way you are is on purpose. Look what God says to him. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Moses, how you are is intentional. That is to say, God creates us exactly the way we need to be. And we can even say this. Some of the deficiencies that we experience are also the result of the fact that we live under the fall. We are born with deficiencies and difficulties and limitations as a result of the sin's curse on humankind, and that is no hurdle for God. In fact, he is saying, I can use you exactly how you are to bring myself the most glory. God is saying, Moses, the way you are is on purpose because you above all people 
will be able to make it clear that the message is compelling. Because Moses, you're not. Everyone will know, Moses, because you are such a lousy speaker that clearly you had something important to say because that's the only way you could say something people would listen to. You say, well, that's kind of rude. No, this is the grace of God's work. He uses our limitations to bring him and his, him the most glory and put us in a place where he can use us exactly the way we are. God is going to use his compelling message through Moses. Moses, who was saved from the water. Moses, who early chapter of his life was characterized by failure and murder. Moses, whose later part of his life was characterized by exile. He is now going to take a compelling message to people who are going to be called through the water, the Red Sea. They're going to be characterized by failure, worshiping a golden calf after they'd known God for like a week and a half. And finally, exile, wandering in the desert for 40 years. Do you think Moses might have an experience that would help him as he shepherds these people? In fact, God has done exactly what needed to be done so that he could use a broken, limited Moses to bring a compelling message to people who needed to hear it. Maybe I could put it this way. The, the gospel message is not compelling because we are. In fact, the gospel message is compelling because we're not. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can listen to me read it. Jesus has this to say to us. He was at the time speaking to his disciples, but this message ought to apply to our own hearts. Jesus says this, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Let's let that settle in. Anyway, so be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. What can we anticipate as believers that Jesus is going to lead us into times of difficulty so that he can use us in times of difficulty to speak through us a message that is compelling? He wants to use us, not in our brilliance that we can come up with the great oratory to convince this great king that God is who he says he is. He says, no, 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 don't worry about it. Don't even take flashcards with you. No note cards, no PowerPoint. Show up, spirit shows up, you stand there and let him speak. He will give us the words. I would say this though, we do at some point have to open our mouths. God's message is compelling and this is what he wants Moses to understand. I want you to go to the Egyptians and not be compelling. I want you to go to the Egyptians and give a compelling message God is redeeming his people out of slavery into relationship with God that they did not deserve. 
many of us understand the gospel when we were saved. He saved us because we are not good enough and we're not good enough. Is that true? Yes, it's true. He doesn't save us because we have something to offer. He doesn't save us because we have great potential. He saves us on purpose because we're not good enough. Then as believers, he calls us into the mission of the church, make disciples, because we're not good enough. Because his message is compelling through us. Okay, God sent. Number one, God's power is convincing. Secondly, God's message is compelling. Look with me at verses 13 through 17, last few verses of Exodus 4. Comes right down to it here for Moses. God has really been giving him the what for, letting him know how this is going to work. And finally, we really discover what Moses is about. Lord, just send someone else. Okay, so this, what this really comes down to, Moses has been making some real great arguments. What's it come down to? He just doesn't want to do it. There's other things on his mind. He Probably a combination of everything that we go through as well. There's certainly his feeling of inadequacy. This is not going to go well for me. When I tried this before, I nearly got killed by Pharaoh himself. I can't speak. I don't, I don't see any successful outcome here, God. Uh, not only that, I, you know, he's got a wife, a couple of kids, pretty decent job. Not to mention he's in his 80s. He might feel like, you know, that, that, God, that's a young man's game. I just don't want to go. I mean, it comes down to it, God. Here's, let's just be, put all our cards on the table, God. You come, you say, I just don't want to go. Verse 14, God got a little frustrated with Moses, and Moses had finally figured out a way to sin his way out of God's purpose, and God cast him aside. No, that's not what happened. Pay attention. Stay awake with me. God said, your brother's coming. He'll help you out. God's purpose is supreme. God's purpose is supreme. In his desire to maintain his comfort, in his desire to avoid fear, in his desire to not get caught up in that cycle of fear and doubt and questioning. I mean, once he gets out in the wilderness with Israel, he knew what was coming. They tried to kill him at least twice. At one point early on in his time with the people of Israel, he had to put his sword on his side with the other Levites and go through the camp killing those who were worshiping idols. It says they killed 24,000 people of Israel that day. He knew this was going to be a messy business. You don't think he didn't wake up at night every now and then and having that day in his mind? God wants to be powerful in Moses' life. God wants to give Moses a compelling message to uh, call people to redemption. God wants to use Moses to help people see God himself. And Moses' reply is, eh, I kind of, you know, God, I, I got kind of a good deal going on. I mentioned this uh, to the folks in the prayer meeting this morning, and I thought I would share it with you because I thought it was an interesting story. I just read it this morning. I don't know how long the story's been out, but a, a singer named Michael Buble. Who knows the Buble? I only, I, I mean, I don't like buy his stuff on iTunes. I just got to be honest with you. But I'll tell you this. When the, when the Buble Christmas special comes out, I don't know why. Like as soon as they put the first advertisement on, I'm like, I am there. I want to see that guy sing all the Christmas carols and... I don't know why. That's silly. Anyway, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but his son, when he was three years old, had liver cancer. It's terrible. 
He's in remission now, kid's five years old. Yeah, and Michael Buble just released, by the way, it's a funny last name, it's fun to say, Buble. He just released an album, and he was being interviewed by, a, I think it was a, a British uh, magazine. He said, no, I'm done. I'm shutting it down. Last album, this, this is probably my last interview. He said, oh, what's going on? He said, you know what? My life changed when my son went through his illness. You don't discover what kind of person you are until you go through this kind of stuff. And he said, I just, this is stupid. I, I'm I have worked my life to be rich and famous, and I discovered the only thing harder than getting rich and famous is staying rich and famous. There is never an end to it. I'm just, it doesn't make, there's, this was his phrase, and he's not a believer as far as I could tell. He said, there's got to be something bigger than this. There's got to be something bigger than this. And see, Moses hadn't gotten there yet. And some of us still aren't. We still think there, no, there's, I, I think I'll get to a certain point. I'll hit that, and then, boy, you know, I'm home free. And you got a guy who had the world happen to him through his hard work and diligence and great voice, and he never got to that point. And he said, once I was at the top of the hill, it was more stressful and difficult to stay on that hill. And what God is telling Moses and what we need to discover from this, God is saying, what I have called you to is that thing you are hunting for with through everything else. My purpose is supreme. My purpose is that thing that will fill your heart with, with joy to know you have found something big enough to bear the weight of your soul, as C.S. Lewis would say. This is how the Apostle Paul said it over in Philippians chapter 3. Indeed, Philippians 3.8, indeed, Paul says, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, I, I look at my life, my whole life, success, power, influence, and then I look at my relationship with the Lord, I say, what, what was I doing? For, the sa for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, but I count them as rubbish. So he lost everything for the sake of Christ, and he said, I took out the trash. And I did that because I have found my gain in Christ. I have found in him not a righteousness of my own that comes through obedience, but that which comes through faith in Christ, righteousness from God that depends on faith only, so that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul said, what do I need? In faith I have found righteousness from Christ, and now I look forward to life eternal in Christ. You can have this stuff. The only thing in Paul's life that he felt was worth mentioning was this, what Christ has done in me. Christ has made me righteous by his work. And so God comes to Moses with his purpose to show his redemption to his people and the watching world. And Moses says, I don't know. I, I, I got some pretty good stuff going on. Look at God's response in verse 17. Moses got a bad attitude, low faith. Probably just was ready to walk away. And here's what God says to him. Get your staff. I like that. Get your staff. Let's go. No, God, I'm not sure. I'm sorry you thought you had a part in this conversation. Let's go. Every now and then we need that, a little kick in the pants. God said, get your staff. 
you're going to do these signs. Uh, God, I don't know that you're listening. Now we're agreeing. <laughs> I'm going to do the talking. You do the listening, Moses. Let's go. See, I love this about God because here's Moses kicking and screaming. And God will not let him go because he knows what the better thing is for Moses. God's purpose is supreme. All right, a couple of things to think about about being God sent. God's power is convincing, his message is compelling, and his purpose is supreme. First of all, I want us to compare a little bit of how we like to approach our life versus the gospel, or what I might call self-actualization or self-realization versus the power of the gospel. How many self-help books are available? Anybody count them? Is there, are there one? Is there a couple? I'm kind of looking for one. I mean, what's really great about self-help books is they really help because we no longer need them. No new ones come out, do they? I think maybe we can safely say that the self-help books aren't helping. What's the problem with the self-help? The self. The gospel comes in and says, yeah, you're not going to help. Let me do it all. You are not going to be a better Christian. You are not going to have better skills. You are not going to be more competent overnight. And God says, I love you, and I am going to be powerful in your weakness. Odds are, if I ask this question, I can say, what's that one thing in your life that you just wish wasn't true? That one weak area, you say, man, I wish that was different. Odds are God intends to use that for his glory and power in your life. Mo, not Moses, Paul said it this way, I prayed three times that God would take from me this thorn in my flesh. And God said, no, I'm going to do it because I want you to stay humble. The power of the gospel is God is going to use us sometimes kicking and screaming, but he is in fact God and he can use us in and through our weaknesses in fact, he can use this most profoundly in our areas of weakness and struggle. God's message is compelling. I would just ask you this. Do you believe God will forgive you? I don't know what you'd want God to do for you. But God has just simply said, I will free you from slavery to your sin, to your rebellion, and give you new life. If you're here and you're not a believer, the compelling message is this. You have not yet sinned enough to make his cross not pay for your sin. He will free you from your bondage to sin. He will give you righteousness in Christ in the instant you believe in him. It's just a matter of faith. For those of us who are believers, I have found, especially those of us raised in the church, in particular, it seems like Baptists and Catholics in particular. Notice I'm not making a theological comparison. I'm making this comparison. Man, are we good at guilt and shame. Man, we feel bad about stuff. It's gotten quiet, so I don't know if that means that you're a part of that team or you don't believe me. Man, we, are good. we feel bad when we're late for stuff, when we're early for stuff, and when we're on time for stuff. We are so good. And rehearsing over and over and over again why we don't measure up. 
The Bible paints the picture this way in the book of Hebrews. There's two people standing at the right hand of the Father. There's the devil and there's Christ. And the devil is doing that. Guilt, shame, accusation over and over and over again. They don't measure up. They blew it again. Boy, they blew it big time this time. And what's Jesus doing? Forgiven? Grace? Oh, that was terrible. This will be fun to use. My glory in this weakness will be incredible. What I would call us to do, his message is compelling. Let's listen to him, not the other guy. Let's be, let's be good through the, through the power of the Scripture and the Holy Spirit at discerning between accusation and the gospel. Let's get really bad at guilt and shame because the cross paid for it. We don't need to carry it any longer. Finally, God's purpose is supreme. Every single one of us, 100%, when we sense the God's uh, call in our life to be obedient in a particular way, will respond the same way. It's our life verse. Oh, God, send somebody else. I'm not going to have you raise your hand. Every one of us says this. When God moves in our heart, we say, you know what? Here's what ought to be. We say, God, really, no, seriously, literally anyone else. Like Lazarus, before he was raised, could do better at that. Let me let you in on something the way God works. Number one, when he moves in your life to draw you to serve him, it will always be an interruption. It will never be a good time. It will never be convenient. It will never be free. It will never be easy. It will always be more than you can handle because he doesn't want you to be glorified. He wants to be glorified. When God moves in your heart and you say, okay, I know what ought to be, but I just don't have time for that, it will always be an interruption. And the reason is this. God is working very hard to make us understand he is not okay with us trying to fit him into our life. Instead, he wants to blow that out of the water and says, Get I'm going to show you how you fit into mine. And that is a grace where he frees us from the, the prison that says, I need to figure out how to make my life worth living. And God says, your life is worth living when you give that dream up and live it in me. God's purpose is supreme. I can't tell you what God is calling you to do. Certainly, you should begin with knowing his word. I'm going to start there. You might want to crack the Bible open occasionally. I always harp on the guys on Wednesday morning with this, so if you're here Wednesday morning, guys, I'll go easy on you. How about this? 20 minutes a day, five days a week. Have I said that before? Yeah, I'm just, 20 minutes a day, five days a week. I'm not even asking you to miss a whole program. Well, actually it is when you take the commercials out. If you're doing it on Hulu. 20 minutes a day, five days a week. Read your Bible. What part? I don't, I actually don't even care at this point. 20 minutes a day, five days, who's in? Yeah, a little hesitant there. Okay, you can just commit in your heart. Okay, good. <laughs> pray before, pray after. Spend two or three minutes before you pray, before you read, pray. When you're done reading, pray, then go. We can start there. We can start by desiring in our homes with our wife, our children, our husbands, our whoever might be living with us that we want to show the grace of Christ to those who are in our home. 
Unfortunately for many of us, including myself, it is easier to show the grace of Christ to literally anyone except those in my home. So we can begin by owning the gospel in our home, slow to anger, quick to forgive, letting go of resentment. We can begin living as those on the job that we have hope in something greater than success on our job. And any success we do have in our job, we can give to Christ and say, he is the one who has decided to give me this success for his purpose. And then when God decides to move in our life in that powerful way, and we utterly and completely fail on the job and we get fired. No one here, right? Instead of going down the cycle of guilt and shame, oh, I'm a loser, or I'm a lame, oh, God could never use someone like me. Maybe God is using that weakness to glorify himself. And I can find my rest not in my ability to be successful, but to rest in God even when life falls apart because God's purpose is supreme. There is something bigger, and I'm going to ask you to believe this by faith. It's a very simple statement. It's this. The biggest thing you can live for is a life of knowing Jesus and telling others about his grace. That is the highest thing in the universe. A life of knowing Jesus and telling others about his grace. God will give us the words to speak, but we must at some point open our mouths.